Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today. Hope you have that text in front of you. And so we continue our little journey here through uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 under the title today, Exulting in God's Economy. Let's pray together. Father, we come today with expectant hearts looking for you to meet us today. We want you to use your word to open our eyes and help us with this thing that we've called the curl, the tendency of our hands to grab a hold of our stuff too quickly. And uh, today we want to be brought back to some important principles in your word about how we are to think about the possessions that you've given us. And so we pray you use your word again this Lord's Day to exalt your son, to um, emboss upon our hearts the truth that is here. And God, is to bring to light um, some new areas of thinking and some new areas of obedience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you know it or not, but generosity is one of the few areas in which God invites his people to test him. He actually says, go ahead, try me, test me in this. Look at uh, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. That's in the Bible. God invites us to test him. So Malachi 3.10 is a true text. I don't know about how it applies to M&Ms, but it certainly uh, is true in terms of how God wants us to view and handle our money. What I want you to see this morning is this, that giving is an act of faith whereby we take God at His word, a moment for us to see how it is that God is able to show Himself strong in our lives. Giving is an opportunity for Um, While we're initially uncomfortable in terms of releasing certain things, then God is able to bless us in remarkable ways. In fact, I, as I've thought about this, I really can't think of anything that has the ability to test our hearts, to reveal our true love, exhibit faith, and create lasting joy more than how we handle the issue of giving. Money, folks, has tremendous spiritual power and potential. Now, right now, we're talking about the subject of giving. We're in the middle of a short little series on the uh, chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians because right now, as a church ministry, we're at kind of a unique moment. We are embarking on uh, 40 days of discovery where we're asking um, you as a family to prayerfully consider a a three-year commitment. It is the largest um, single project in College Park's history. It's the the largest moment that we've had to practice the uh, stewardship of giving, the joy of giving. And at the same time, what you need to know, as I said last week, the building is not my goal. There are things connected with this uh, process for us as a church that are really important, and I don't want you to miss the spiritual lessons that are here for us. Last week, I asked you to do three things, and that is that you'd pray, Um, seek the Lord together for His will in our church. The second thing is to attend a dessert night. Those are beginning this week. And when you came in this morning, you should have received a a bookmark that looks something like this, just a friendly reminder of the dates, the times, the uh, opportunities that you have to engage in more detail, ask questions, and uh, get some information. Even if you're like, yeah, I'm on board, we still like you to come to hear what's going on. You'll receive a commitment card at those dessert nights. And then... um, You'll have an opportunity to turn those in by uh, March 14th. The end game in all of this is for us to um, take our mission of igniting a passion to follow Jesus and, and find some more space to be able to do that. And also, in that process, to learn some great and wonderful things about the subject of generosity. So last week we were talking about the uh, three churches that were in the... Um, 
the Middle Eastern area around the Mediterranean Sea, the church at Corinth, the church at Macedonia, and the church at Jerusalem. And if you'll remember, or for those of you who weren't here last week, this uh, section in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is written to the church at Corinth. And he, the Apostle Paul writes about the generosity of the Macedonians. They were an impoverished people who took an offering, as other churches were doing, for the saints in the city of Jerusalem. And so Paul writes to the church at Corinth about the generosity of the Macedonians to motivate them in taking their offering so that when Paul comes on his return visit to the city, he'll have a good collection to be able to take to the saints of Jerusalem. So Paul's end game was not just this offering, though. Instead, he used the offering for the saints of Jerusalem as a platform to talk about the subject of generosity. And um, that's why we're looking at this as well, to try and figure out what is it that the Lord wants us to learn about generosity under the platform that we're wrestling with, which is an offering, a commitment for a new facility. Last week, there were four things that I identified uh, from this text. And by the way, there's going to be 20 principles from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And so you can follow along the number as uh, we make our way through. The first one was generosity is motivated through personal example. In other words, when God gives you a story of showing his uh, provision in your life, when God um, shows himself to be strong, you need to share that story, that we're motivated mightily by a personal example. The second principle was that generosity is rooted in the grace of God, that there's past, present, and future grace all connected into this thing called giving and generosity. Third, we saw that generosity is linked to the lordship of Christ, meaning that God doesn't just want our money, he wants all of us. The text tells us that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then also to us. And then fourth, that generosity is a part of spiritual maturity. That as we're excelling in so many other things, so many other disciplines, as we're growing in our knowledge of prayer, understanding of the Word, some of you have really grown, you've come to faith in Christ in the last year, um, you've really grown in what it means to be mature, that this area of generosity and giving is a key part of spiritual maturity. In fact, I argued last week that if generosity and giving isn't part of the equation, no matter what you know or how long you've known it, you're really not spiritually mature. And we'll see that why that is the case even further today. Now, here's the fifth principle, and it's this, that generosity is a proof of the genuineness of love. Look at verse 8. Here's what Paul says. I say this not as a command. So Paul isn't commanding them to give. But rather, he says, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So Paul identifies for us here one of the most critical things that's underlying the spirit of generosity. And that relates to the motive of love. That that love becomes a critical piece of what makes giving really special. There's a couple things I want you to see here. The first is that love is essential for the giving in order for it to come from the right motive. Have you ever had to give a gift that you felt like was an obligation? Someone gave you a gift and you felt like it was just proper that you had to reciprocate and you had the discussion with your spouse, do we really have to give them a gift? I mean, do we really have to? Do we really? What are we supposed to bring? Do we have to bring a gift? And you have this old discussion. Do you bring a gift? Do you not bring a gift? And and let's just be honest. That's just not a fun gift to buy. It's not a fun gift to give. And if you know it's a reciprocal gift, you know it's not a fun gift to receive either. Unless, of course, it's really expensive, correct? So... So you give someone a gift, but if the motive isn't right, it just takes away all of the fun, all of the joy. Let me give you an example. Today, obviously, is Valentine's Day. Uh, Imagine if um, I buy my wife some flowers for 
Valentine's Day, and while she's away shopping, I sneak out to Marsh, and I buy her a nice little bouquet, and a little high-end price there, you know, and so I bring them back and, and, and put it on the, uh, the kitchen table, and um, I sit down in my chair with the newspaper, and I wait for her to come home, and she walks in the door with her groceries, and she sees on the table this beautiful spread of flowers, and she says, oh, honey, you bought me flowers, you didn't have to do that, that's so sweet, and I put my paper down, and I say to her, what are you, crazy? Of course I have to buy you flowers. It's Valentine's Day. I mean, I have to buy you flowers. If I don't, you know what's going to happen, right? I mean, I mean, come on, Jermaine, that's not a cool way to say it, is it? Huh? No, no, that's, that's not going to be a happy Valentine's Day, right? And instead, the tone should be something like this. Well, what are you, crazy? Of course I had to buy you flowers. I mean, I have to buy you flowers. It's Valentine's Day. I mean, the tone is so different, isn't it? Because what? Because the motive is radically different. And that makes the gift meaningful. So love is a critical part of the giving because it relates to the motive. There's a second thing. Love is a part of the giving in the fact that it proves the genuineness of the love. Let's just put kind of brass tacks on the table here. Talk is cheap. Anybody can say that they love somebody. Anybody can say that somebody else is important to them. But but the real proof is in the actions. First John chapter 3. Listen to how John says this. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? I mean, could that be any clearer? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the second thing that's related to the proof of the genuineness of love here is the fact that you can say anything you want, but but giving verifies that that love is genuine. So love, first of all, serves as the great motivator to make the gift even special or meaningful. But the second thing is that, that love or, or love proves that this gift is really coming from the right heart, and it gives evidence that the love is indeed real. So what, we, what I want you to see here is that giving provides proof that our love for God and for others is more than just mere talk. This is why Paul draws upon love as the motivator for the Corinthian church to give and not command, because he knew that whenever someone gives by compulsion, it could result in a monetary gift, but it doesn't result in real giving. So true giving comes from a heart of love, And giving shows us where our true love is. In other words, we spend money on what we really love. That's the cold hard facts. For, For some who say they love Jesus, but they never or rarely give, or it's like pulling an eye tooth for them to give anything away, it says a lot more than what you think about what you really love. To say that you really love your church, you love what happens here every Sunday, but you don't give to financially support it, says something about what you really love. To say you love foreign missions and you believe in in reaching unreached people groups, but you don't give, tells your own heart that you just would like to believe that you believe that, but you don't really. See, this is what the Bible says. That love becomes a primary motivator, a primary proof that our love is genuine. Now, principle 
Let me give, before I go on principle six, let me give you this from Randy Elkhorn. Listen to what he says. My heart always goes where I put God's money. So our hearts follow our money. He says, show me your checkbook, your visa statement, and your receipts, and I'll show you where your heart is. Jesus wants people so filled with a vision for eternity that they wouldn't dream of invest of not investing their money, time, and prayers where they matter the most. Now, sixth, generosity is a reminder of the gospel. So last week we talked about the importance of grace as it relates to giving. We talked about past grace, looking back on what God has done, present grace, the empowerment that he gives to give, and then also future grace, the grace that I will believe him and take him at his word that he will provide for me in the future. But even more now, Paul dials in to the connection between giving, generosity, and the subject of the gospel. Look at verse 9. Very clearly, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That is incredibly clear, isn't it? I mean, the implication here is just obvious. It is that Jesus is called rich because he possesses everything. He is the owner, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler of everything. Jesus owns a monopoly on power and sovereignty and supremacy. Jesus owns it all. I mean, he looks at our little idea of what ownership is, and his is an ownership of a scale that you and I can't even fathom. That Colossians chapter 1 says it this way, For by Him, this is verse 16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So Jesus is the great possessor of everything that is. And He possessed this even before He came to the earth. In harmony with the Father and the Spirit, Jesus possessed perfect happiness, perfect fellowship, perfect joy. He had everything. He was immeasurably, eternally, sovereignly, and supremely rich. And yet the Bible says He takes all of that riches and He becomes poor. Philippians 2. He himself was made nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is a poverty that you and I can barely even imagine, because we hardly even know what his life was like prior to coming to the earth. And what the Bible tells us, this is the gospel, is that Jesus, the Son of God, full of all resources, all wealth, all fellowship, perfect harmony with the Father, leaves all of that, becomes humiliated by taking on the finite form of a man, and then is humiliated even further by hanging on a cross and God pouring out His wrath on His perfect Son in order that thousands of impoverished, spiritually bankrupt people like you and me could see His sacrifice and say, count that death as my own, and then God takes all of your sin and gives it to Him and takes all of His spiritual wealth and gives it to you. That is the gospel. That is forgiveness. That is the way that Jesus became rich and then was poor in order so that you who were poor might be rich. That's the gospel. Ephesians 2, take your Bibles and turn there. Ephesians 2 and verse 4. Here is a a summary of this. 
Generosity, again, is a reminder of the gospel. That's what Paul says, that Jesus was rich, but he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And this is what, what Paul says, summarizing that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. You see, it's not just that you were poor. It's that you were bankrupt beyond any ability to ever recover. You were actually dead. Dead in your trespasses. Notice what he did. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. It's a stunning statement of the beauty of what God in Christ does for us. So there are two implications then of this statement. The first, that generosity is a reminder of the gospel. The first is this, is that people who've experienced this much generosity... People who know that they were spiritually bankrupt and they have become loaded with all sorts of spiritual riches because of a person named Jesus who was rich and then he became poor so that you could be lifted up. People who know this ought to overflow with generosity because if the church doesn't model this, who pray tell will? Because nobody else understands what real poverty is. And once you've experienced the beautiful forgiveness that comes with the sacrifice of Christ and being declared a new creature, and you're overwhelmed with the beauty of the overflowing mercy of Jesus upon your heart, there ought to be an overflow of generosity from you. Or, I would argue, you really don't get it when it comes to the gospel. The second thing is, every time you give, regardless where it is, it takes you back to the fact that you wouldn't think about giving, you wouldn't want to give, you wouldn't act on the impulse to give if it wasn't for God's grace. And so every time you give, it takes you back to the gospel. And therefore, generosity is a strong reminder about what happened to you in the work of Christ in his cross, on his cross, in his body, to set you free. The seventh principle is this, that generosity is rewarded. Look at verse 10. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you. That little phrase, this benefits you. What I want you to see is that generosity is rewarded. When, when Paul considered this gift... He believed that it was good not only for the people of Jerusalem who were going to receive it, but he also believed that it was good for the church at Corinth. Paul knew that giving was not a one-way street. It isn't just that you take money and you're going to give it and then it stops. No, Paul knew that there was a bounce-back effect in terms of spiritual reward. Paul understood that generosity was rewarded, and so what he does is he elevates the reward, which is what Jesus does all the time. That Jesus constantly talks about the reward. So I want you to know that one reason that we are to give is because of the fact that we're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And being motivated for future reward and future investment is not 
um, a, a poor motive for giving. Jesus put it this way in Luke 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So Jesus isn't against money. He's not even against investment. What he's against is bad investment. And bad investment is simply living for this life right now. So Paul sees the Corinthian participation as something that will not only be a benefit to the folks in Jerusalem, but it will also be something that's beneficial to them. Now why is this important? This is important because there is this little thing that can come in your mind, and I know that it happens to most of us in this room. It's happened to me before. That when you begin to write out a check or you begin to give something away, you pause and you look at that and you think something like this. You know what I could do with that? That's like a TV right there. That's like a really, really decent car payment. And and you see that going out of your checkbook a month? And you're, you're seeing that going out? And there's a part of you that looks at that and thinks, I'm just throwing it away. Because we are giving it, there might be a sense in our minds and hearts for a few seconds that I'm just wasting this. I'm just giving it away, just throwing it away. And yet what this principle is telling us here is that it is to our benefit. The fight of faith is considering the true wealth that we're earning. Or as Jim Elliott wisely said, that man who was martyred at age 28 trying to minister to the Indians in Ecuador, he said, He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Some of you need to write that on your checkbook or on your computer screen where you check your account balances. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Some of you wives need to memorize that. So when your husband's like, we can't give that, you might say, he is no fool who can, you know, you just be able to nail, nail, nail that one and help him. Or husbands, you need to help your wives with that. So the idea is this, that you never lose anything that you give away. You never lose it. You just defer it. Principle number eight. Generosity is to come from what you have. Oh, these next two are really, really important. There's so much fun studying this and getting a hold of this again. Because these are really important principles. Verse 12 says this, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So what does this mean? It means that every person is responsible to be generous according to his or her ability. See, the problem is, first, that sometimes when we think about generosity or giving, we think that the only gifts that really count are the big ones. And so therefore... There's this natural tendency to think, well, what will my small gift really do? And what happens is that even though you may not have a lot or may not be able to give a lot monetarily, you end up squelching a a giving mentality by thinking that in comparison to others, my gift really is not that significant. And yet the Bible measures giving not by quantity, but by sacrifice and heart. 
Luke 21, Jesus one time was observing a widow who was putting a collection into the collection box at the temple. And he saw her put her two copper coins in the offering box. And he said to his disciples, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in than all of them. So generosity from God's perspective is measured by heart and sacrifice, not size or amount. And the other reason why this is important is because there's a tendency with those who have less to pray about and try and give through and hope other people's checkbooks will be released. So there's a tendency to give through another person's checkbook. This happens when you pray more about God getting a hold of someone else's heart rather than praying about your own heart because you think they can do much more than you. And so we end up praying or thinking, well, I hope so-and-so's on board with this because they got a lot and they should be able to give a lot. When the reality is God wants us all looking at what we have and what we can do. So generosity is to come from what we have. Now sometimes this requires some creative thinking. Because if you were to look around your house and look at the stuff, I, I trust that you realize that all of us have a lot of stuff. In fact, a lot more than what we probably even need or in some cases even want. When I was teaching this concept in my last church, there was a, a man um, in our church who had a lot of, um, he would call them, expensive toys. And the problem with these expensive toys is they, he bought them at first so that he could have fun with his family, and, and then over time, the toys started to take over his life. They had to be washed and cleaned and gassed and stored and maintained, and before you knew it, he was maintaining all his toys. And he spent a lot of time having to maintain all these toys. And when we were teaching on this concept, he looked at that and said, you know what, here's what I have. I have all of these things, and you know what? Not only are they maybe a bad stewardship in my life, but they also take way too much time. So he began to sell them one at a time and give the money away. And his joy was twofold. The first joy was the fact that he could give a fairly significant amount of money, and he didn't think that he could because he now had all this revenue from selling his stuff. But the second thing was he got his weekends back because he didn't have to polish and gas and take care of all of these things. He was a free man and so he thought creatively what do I have and how can I be generous with what I have in my own possession ran into someone this week who told me that based upon what God had spoken to them about last week that they were spending way 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 too much on cable and so they determined that they were going to find a, a different cable plan and reduce their cable amount and then give the difference see I think all of us at some level can do something somewhere it's just a matter of looking at what it is that you personally have and what is it that you could actually give. This also raises a sensitive but important issue that I need to speak to. My guess is that for some of you, this series is particularly painful because when you think of what you have, you'd be honest and say, well, I, what I have is one thing, but what I owe is another. Because if you were honest... The idea of being able to give to something is really stressful because you're so in debt you have no freedom to give. And the fact of the matter is you're in bondage in two ways. You're in double bondage. The first bondage is the fact that you're so tied up in debt that you're struggling to make ends meet and so you're constantly in this process of trying to pay back all of these things. But on the other side, there's another bondage that you've maybe now come to be aware of, and that is that when an opportunity for generosity comes, it almost seems impossible, because how can I? Because we can barely pay our bills. And what's happened is by the sinfulness of overspending and having a consumer mentality and having a covetous heart, you've, you've not only put yourself in bondage, but you've also limited your freedom to be a part of the joy of what God wants to do. 
So to those of you who are in that position, and, and there has to be a, a significant number, if the statistics across our country prove to be true, I would tell you first, find something that you can do. So, there has to be something that you can do to just be entering into this element of giving, and whether it's to, to this project as a church or something else, doesn't matter to me. You just have to be giving. And the second thing I would say, that maybe this series is a call for you to maybe take some serious inventory about where your financial realm and, and home is headed. And maybe it's a little bit of a wake-up call to say, you know what, we need to get our house in order in this regard. Generosity is to come from what you have. Here's the final principle. It's this, that generosity is part of God's plan for provision. Verse 14 says this, Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So, now, Paul at the end here, in verse 15, quotes Exodus 16, 18. That's where it says, whoever gathered little had no lack, whoever gathered much. And that's the story about manna from heaven. Started to dial into this, and it was amazing what I was, what I was able to discover here in the passage. Paul refers to that moment in Israel's history when manna from heaven came down and people gathered according to what they needed. So then I started thinking, well, why would Paul use this story in the Old Testament for this particular passage? Why, why use that story for this situation? Here's why. Because what Paul is saying here is that your abundance is given to you in order to meet the needs of other people. In other words, God doesn't rain down manna from heaven. He doesn't rain down M&Ms from the sky, right? Like we saw in the video. He doesn't do that. But you know what He does do instead? God's system of delivering manna to His people is now providing material and financial provisions to His people so they can look around and find people in need so they can meet their needs. So God's delivery system of providing manna is no longer making manna fall from heaven. No, it's giving it to His children and then opening their hearts so that then they will disperse it and be a part of the benevolent needs of other people. That's amazing. In fact, that radically changes how we view possessions. Paul is calling for a very different view of possessions. He's comparing the significant provision of manna as to the way that God provides for us and through us. Or, as Randy Elkhorn says, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. Those of you who are new in your career, be careful. Just because you get a pay increase, you suddenly move to a new standard of living, it is not any easier to give when you make more money. In fact, in some cases, it's harder because the money's more. And you're like, whoa! Now we could buy a, a big car payment with this. So you need to see, why, why is God prospering you? Is it just to raise your standard of living? Elkhorn would say, no, it's to raise your standard of giving. The idea is, if I view my possessions from that perspective, that everything belongs to God, God's given me money not just to meet my needs, but He's actually given me money to meet the needs of others, that changes how I view His provision for me. That He's given me this stuff in order to meet the needs of others. So how does that apply here in our present situation? Here's an example. You realize that we benefit today, this very moment, from a building that very few of us had anything to do with paying for. We we walk into a, a building that nobody, very few of us, paid for this particular facility. 
And therefore, we are getting the benefit from someone else's generosity from years and years ago. You're coming in and you're experiencing a warm room because some folks over the last four weeks have paid so that we could take care of our heat and light. You see, what happens is that we use our financial resources to be able to meet the needs of others in the future. And do you know, as it relates to our future building, that we're going to put a facility that thousands and thousands of people will benefit from who will never contribute to that building, but they will benefit from it like we are today from this one. And what Paul is saying here is there's an equality. It also means that there are people in this room who've experienced significant financial hardships and job losses in the last two years. And there's others of us who haven't experienced that. And what Paul is saying here is in a moment when you've got that happening, it is the responsibility of those who have provisions to be able to meet the needs of the people who don't have in order so that there is an equality and a fairness. And then he says, and then the reverse also happens, that when then you have a need, those who have abundance will be able to meet your needs. That's how God's economy works. But it involves a complete reorientation of how we think about the stuff that we have. To be able to see our possessions through a lens of God wants me to use my stuff to further His kingdom. He wants to use me as a conduit to be able to provide for the needs of other people. And that, my friends, is not how our culture thinks at all. At all. But that's how we should think. A number of months ago, my family and I were checking out of a a super center. I won't name where it was. And um, we were in line, and in front of us was an old Amish couple. Classic how they appeared. He had blue overalls, light blue shirt, broad rimmed hat, long beard. She had a long blue dress on hair in a bun with a um, head covering. They had a fairly significant number of supplies. They got to the end, started to check out. They tried to write the check, handed it to the teller, and that's when I noticed something was wrong. The teller said to her and him rather rudely, you can't write an out-of-town check with no ID. And and I started to get a little angry because I remembered my experience, right, at uh, this particular place about my ID. And I was like, come on. Uh, Thankfully, it wasn't the same person. But anyways... um, and, I, and, and they looked at each other, and they just shrugged their shoulders and sadly walked off, and they left all their stuff in their bags right there. And I was just, I was ticked inside. My, I was like, this is wrong. So I let my, my wife and kids, Sarah took her, her debit card, started paying for the groceries. I went and found the Amish couple and said, hey, listen, I couldn't help overhearing that. And um, could, let's just do this. How about if you write me the check, and then I'll just use my debit card. We'll just take care of it right now. And he said, Really? And I said, yeah, let's we'll just go ahead and do that. And um, so we went and did that, got all their stuff in the... And I wanted just to say to the girl, <laughs> just kind of ring us in. <laughs> Look at this. Come on, come on. Yeah, I'll ring my, and um, put the stuff in the bag. And as we're walking them out the door, I said, Look, why are, why are you in Indianapolis? Your check says you're from way down south Indiana. So well, my wife's having back surgery in a couple of weeks. We're up for a pre-op. And I said, oh, are you serious? I gave my business card and said, look, I'm a pastor in town here. We'd love to have one of our pastors come and pray with you before surgery. I'd love to come after surgery and, and, and just visit with you. And they said, oh, that'd be great. I thought I'd never hear from them. Three weeks later, strange phone call on my cell phone, and sure enough, it was this man telling me his wife was going to be in. So Don Bartimus went to the hospital and prayed with her. And then I had the privilege of walking into this post-surgery room with ten grown Amish children all around <laughs> talking German to each other. <laughs> And they all knew my first name. Are you Mark? Are you Mark? Are you Mark? And had the opportunity to share the gospel with them very briefly and then have a word of prayer with them. And that opportunity would have never happened 
had I not used my debit card to platform the gospel. And look, that didn't even cost me a thing. Zero. But there was risk. I mean, I took the check to the bank and I was like, oh, hope this doesn't bounce, Lord. Right? So, no, 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 he's Amish. He's good for it, I'm sure. You know, There was no risk involved. But you know what? To use that debit card to platform the gospel. That's why God gives us resources. That's why He gives us stuff. And we got to see our stuff and our money through a different lens, a lens of God's economy, so we can exalt in Him through our stuff that God gives us. Father, I pray that you would um, use this text to increase our faith and increase our joy and where needed, Lord, to increase our conviction. Lord, I pray for some of my brothers and sisters here this morning whose, whose finances are a mess and they are stuck and this series is killing them. And Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be discouragement but instead there would just be a resolve. Look, we've we got to turn this thing around over the next number of years so we can be free to do what you want us to do. Lord, I pray that there would be a resurgence of giving, not just to a project, but Lord, to benevolence, to great nonprofits in our community, to people in this church. Lord, that there would just be an extravagance of grace giving at College Park Church. So God, please use this text. Put it into our hearts so that we would be good stewards of what you give to us. You've given so much to us. Forgive us for how often we have curled our fingers around your stuff. After we're done here, some of our counseling staff will be up here, our prayer partners and um, they would love to be able to pray with you. If you're a husband and wife, you're just like, you know what? Our, our finances are a mess. We just need someone to pray for us. The first step is being honest about where you're at. We've got some ways we can help you, some things we can get into your hands. But at the end of the day, you've got to decide, okay, enough's enough. There's another need in your heart. We've got some folks here who would like to know a little bit more about this thing we call the gospel. This, our team is here to pray with you this morning. So, Father, teach us that it is better to give than to receive. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.